Java has been popular since the 90s, when it started to be used as a programming language for enterprises. Today, Java is still widely deployed, but the infrastructure environment is dramatically different. Java is often deployed to containers in the cloud. If those containers can share resources, then those containers can share the same underlying Java infrastructure. Java 13 is the most recent public release of Java. The new features in Java 13 reflect the changing demands of modern application developers. George Saab is an engineer with Oracle, who has been working on Java for more than a decade. He joins the show to discuss how Java development patterns are changing, and how the language is evolving to accommodate those changes, including discussions of garbage collection, dynamic application class data sharing, and other technical subjects. I want to announce we're hiring a content writer. We're also hiring an operations lead. Both of these are part-time positions, working closely with myself and Erica. If you are somebody interested in writing content about software engineering, or if you're interested in helping us with operations, both of these roles are fairly technical. You will learn more about software engineering. You do not need to be a software engineer. You do not need to have a degree in anything related to software engineering, but we would love to uh, talk to people who are interested in the podcast, who like the podcast. Send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Also, we're going to be at AWS reInvent Las Vegas this week, and we're planning a meetup at reInvent. That meetup is going to be Wednesday, December 4th, which is in contrast to the date we previously announced. And you can see the announcement in the show notes for this episode. You can see the link and you can grab an RSVP. I would love to see you there. George Saab, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. Today we're talking about Java and specifically Java 13. And I want to start with some contextual discussion. So we have cloud infrastructure these days, and cloud infrastructure has had a lot of downstream effects on software development. How has the cloud impacted programming language choices from your point of view? Well, I think that one of the things that we see whenever there's kind of a new environment or situation where people want to use a programming language, it can drive the kind of requirements that you have. So, you know, when we look at what people are doing in the cloud, In many ways, the cloud itself is not that different, but a lot of the ways that people use the cloud tend to make different things important. So as an example, the way that people want to use containers as a way of deploying things to the cloud means that we need to make sure that our runtime and language support running in a container really well. And sometimes that can be changes to language itself, more often or, or usually the first thing that you tend to see is that, you know, will lead to different things in the implementation. So just as an example, the way that Docker works with Linux in order to let a runtime know what resources are available to it is slightly different from the sort of traditional way that that was done if you were just running Linux directly on, on your desktop. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing where the implementation of the runtime needs to be aware of those changes and make sure that it's doing things in the right way. You mentioned containerization there. Can you drill into that a little bit further? How has the popularity of containerization 
affected the usage of programming languages? And maybe if you could address Java specifically and how containerization has affected Java. Well, you know, just as an example, the way that people tended to use Java a decade ago was they would get a big server and then, you know, they would run an application server on that. And typically, you know, the assumption was that your application server had full control of the server you were running on and it was probably the only thing running there. And so that would tend to lead the runtime to want to be fairly aggressive with its use of the resources on the underlying hardware and operating system. Basically making the assumption that nothing else is there, it didn't need to worry as much about releasing memory quickly to the operating system or taking advantage of all of the cores that were uh, available on the hardware or other things like that. Whereas running in Docker containers, basically, if you continue to use the same Linux system calls, you would not be aware of the fact that you're now actually sharing that underlying hardware with a bunch of other containers that are, are out there. And so you need to be a much better citizen and not take more resources than you're currently making use of. And the way that that translates is to different underlying system calls in order to sort of ask what's available to you. I think what you're describing is the noisy neighbor problem, effectively, where in a multi-tenant system, you have all the different tenants, all the different applications that are running on a single host. They are competing for resources. There are ways that they could share resources or or make use of shared infrastructure, but if they're not really aware of each other or if the host is not really trying to make use of potential commonalities between those applications, then it's just going to be a battle for resources among these different applications. That can just create a different infrastructure environment than perhaps a host with a single application running on it, or even a VM with a single application running on it, whereas today you can now have like a VM with multiple containers or a host with just a ton of containers. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. And it's also sort of a question of the scale at which that's done or at what level in the architecture that's done. So as an example, with Java EE app servers, you know, a decade ago, that problem still occurred, but it was occurring, you know, within the JVM itself. You know, whereas with Docker containers and, and so on now, what people tend to be doing is having a different level of isolation and, you know, having in each one of those containers probably have a more sort of single purpose and using the container technology in order to be able to kind of split things up between different services. You've worked on Java for almost a decade. How was the Java ecosystem different when you started? So I've actually been working on Java since the mid-90s. I was on the Java team at Sun in the very early days. Okay, so more than two decades. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy, you know, how long I and, and actually many of the, the team members are sort of long, long-term long folks that have been working on Java for quite a while. I think that to answer your question specifically in the, in the last decade is a real speed up in how quickly things are happening and how quickly we need to be able to put you know, new features and capabilities in people's hands. And so we basically took a look at this 10 years ago and said, hey, we want to make sure that Java is poised to be able to deliver things to people more quickly. The pace at which we deliver new versions of Java 25 years ago 
was kind of appropriate for the way that people did software development then. But you know, more and more, we're seeing that people are picking up new technologies quickly. They're adapting the style of programming and architecture that they're using. And they want to see that the tools and languages that they're using are able to keep pace with that rate of change. And so a decade ago, we, we decided we were going to look at a sort of longer-term effort to move to having new releases that happened you know, more frequently than the sort of two to three to four-year pace that, that Java had been on traditionally. And you know, it took a little while to get that set up. It wasn't something that we could change overnight. But basically, we were able to successfully move to that model from the release of Java 9 a couple of years ago. And so since then, we've been keeping a pace of a new release of Java every six months. So we'll get into that increased release frequency and some more context around that, and as well as the specific improvements in Java 13. I want to continue this discussion of the broader ecosystem. So if you've been tracking programming languages for the last 20 years, you've seen the rise of JavaScript. You've seen the rise of Ruby on the back end. You've seen some people using Go and perhaps Rust. Java continues to truck on, and there are plenty of gigantic successful applications that use Java. Is there a specific type of application that Java caters to today that it that Java is the best for? Or is it just something about the duration of the ecosystem, the maturity of the ecosystem? What is it specifically about Java that makes certain applications a good fit for Java? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. That's certainly uh, something that I've looked at and asked people in the ecosystem what their thoughts are on it. I think that in many ways, the fact that Java exists in so many places and is you know, just a really good and solid tool for many different kinds of applications has led to this sort of virtuous circle, right? Where the fact that it's good for so many things means it's great for people to invest in and learn about. And the fact that they have invested and learned about it has meant that you know they've created just a wonderful set of libraries and frameworks and other things that give people a lot of choice. It means that employers have a lot of people to choose from and can find a lot of talent. And the other way around, that you know people who want to learn some technology that's going to help them get get hired and become key for their employer, it's a pretty good choice. So I think that when I look at the kinds of applications people are running, I think, you know, many people that I speak with come to me, you know, specifically through the area that they're involved in. So, you know, they come and say, well, I'm working on, you know, server-side applications on Java, on, you know, traditional Java EE servers. And so they'll have, you know, one set of perspectives. But I also get people who are coming and doing embedded Java who are running Java on small devices, or people who are working with Java Card. There's just, you know, a very, very wide range of things out there. And, you know, one thing that's common is most of these people are very passionate about their language choices, and they all have suggestions of, you know, what we need to do to make Java better. But, you know, generally, one of the things that they tell me is that our dedication over the years to making sure that the evolution that we're doing in Java is not just haphazard, but is very thoughtful and methodical, and that while we're doing evolution, we also take care to make sure that we're bringing everyone along and making sure that the upward compatibility story is really good is something that's been important to them. 
So you know, they'll say, hey, I have this application that I originally wrote for JDK 1.1, and you know, I ran it the other day on 13, and it's running great, except a lot faster. <laughs> so I think it's actually really neat to see. Programming languages, historically, in many cases, they age out. So I assume there was a time when small talk was more widely used in industry. I know COBOL was widely used. Fortran was widely used. I mean, these applications are still around. But the programming language mindshare of those languages has decreased over time. And that's just that's just a nature of, of technology. Java, I feel, is in the process of crossing the chasm from one age to another. And it seems like it is doing so successfully. So like we've talked about the past architectural pressures for what you would want out of your Java infrastructure. And how that has sort of changed, where you maybe want smaller application components, you want to deploy them to containers, and that just creates different desires out of maybe what you want out of a garbage collector or what you want out of a framework. Maybe you see Spring needing to change, you know, going to Spring Boot and Spring Boot being an easier way to spin up some cheap and smaller or lighter weight boilerplate applications. So as we get into talking about kind of the incremental changes into Java 13, before we get into the incremental changes, give me a long-range view for where Java needs to go in order to remain a durable, widely used programming language. Yeah, so I'd say that I agree with you in terms of, you know, there being sort of changes that happen in the industry and it requiring attention from programming language developers to make sure that we're sort of doing the things that are going to help the language make the transition and, and help the users of the language make the transition to new styles of creating applications and new architectures that, that people want to run. For us, you know, interestingly, the move to the cloud has really taken a few things that have been themes that we thought about for quite a number of years and really brought them on very, very quickly. For example, for many years, the focus in Java design and implementation was around thinking about how to make very long-running workloads with very, very large data sets or very large heaps run really, really well and really quickly. And for the cloud, we're seeing actually two very interesting trends, and these are in some ways somewhat at conflict or divergent, but in some ways, in some ways not. So to be very concrete, many of the things that we did years ago for long-running, large memory kinds of workloads are actually still around today for things like machine learning. Right? When you have giant data sets that you want to be reasoning over, it's important that you be able to represent that memory compactly, that it be convenient to deal with, and that you be able to write rules that are, are sort of looking at that data and doing interesting analysis of it quickly. And many of the, the capabilities that Java has there are standing in a good stead in, in those kind of environments. Now, you know, having said that, there are more things we can and are doing. So, you know, what we tend to do is sort of look at it and understand how some of the underlying changes, for instance, in hardware, you know, make it so that the choices that were made when designing Java 25, 30 years ago maybe need to be rethought 
a little bit. And so we have a, a long-term project called Valhalla, which has basically been about looking at how the Java runtime decides to lay out data in memory and finding ways of representing it that are really relevant for today's data sets, for instance, in machine learning, so that it can become even more compact and even more performant and really take advantage of the developments in underlying hardware such as such as vectorization and, and so on. On the other hand, we have you know almost the other extreme where people want to, to adopt a more microservice style of architecture, where basically they want something that can come come up quickly, do something really fast, and then just kind of go away. And of course, the uh, techniques that we developed for optimizing code that has been running for you know many many hours on a server don't really come into play there because you know this thing should have come up and done something and, and disappeared before you even get to the point where that might happen. And so, in order to support those kinds of things, we have other projects that are looking at improving startup time, doing things like ahead of time compilation you know, having different styles of garbage collection that actually work well, or in some cases, get out of the way entirely for those kinds of workloads. And I think one way in which Java is updating itself to remain highly relevant is this increased release frequency. So back when I was a software engineer, when I actually like wrote applications instead of just podcasting about it, I think literally every company that I worked at, which was a Java shop, which was four out of five companies that I worked at in in the duration of my career, or maybe five out of six, each of them had like, I think it was Java 7, Java 8, and Java 9 or something, just like different tiers of the architecture that were on different versions of Java and just getting it updated was a huge struggle. Getting a uniform, homogeneous Java, like, and it was always an issue in GitHub, just like an issue with, you know, an endless amount of comments, like, okay, like, update to Java 7. It's just really long. Nobody can ever finish it. And I think part of the reason for that is because the release cycle was so long and there was so much in each Java release. Am I painting an accurate picture of the state of enterprise Java and and the motivations for getting to a more frequent release cycle? Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that part of the problem with those long release cycles is they would happen so infrequently that everyone knew it would be a big effort. And so you would tend to sort of put it off and then it kind of snowballs. And then the same thing is true for the contents of the releases, right? Because the releases, you know, were so long in between, there's sort of a, a great desire. I mean, everyone who's working on the JDK wants to get good features in and make things better for developers. But what ends up happening is you get lots and lots and lots of features baked in. And so the cumulative effect of that is that when that version comes out, or when it came out, it would be a very disruptive event. And so people would race around trying to get their libraries updated and all of their tools, like their IDs and debuggers and other things, you know, updated. And that often was a process that took quite a while. In addition, at that time, I, I would say, you know, even looking back towards the sort of early 2000s, much of that work was being done 
in closed source and without many, you know, sort of early access bills, if, if at all. And so it was the kind of thing where it was tough for people to know what to anticipate or to try it out and give feedback. And it was tough for folks like my team working on the JDK to know what kinds of issues people were running into. And so that would all, all kind of snowball. You know, I'm really happy to say that where we are now, these new releases of Java we're doing that are coming so much more frequently have a lot less in them. They're intentionally very incremental. And so the idea there is that there's just not as much that's going to get in your way and cause issues and cause delays and people being able to update, especially because, you know, we continue with the practice that we've had of running hundreds of thousands of compatibility tests and, and now, you know, having the sort of added transparency that we get of doing all of our development in open source and providing usually about weekly early access builds of the next version that is under development. It just really gives people a way to try things out that are works in progress and give us feedback so that we can make sure that they're just really, really you know, sound and stable and don't cause issues when they come out. I think one other thing that I, I sort of add there is that the module system that we added in JDK 9, you know, really one of the main intents for that was to make it easier, both for us in making the JDK, but also for people making libraries, whether they're ones that they're distributing and encouraging people to use across the industry, or whether they're even just kind of local in scope, a library that you're using within, within your enterprise, to be able to distinguish between the public API of your library that you guarantee you're going to keep consistent and private implementation details, which you need to have the flexibility to change and improve as you're going forward. And so in the past, it was sometimes kind of unclear or difficult for people to understand when they had inadvertently built in a dependency on something that they really shouldn't be dependent on. And so then, you know, when that thing changes, oh, wow, now I have an update problem. So I think that as people are starting to embrace the module system and, and use it, it just makes it much, much easier for developers of those libraries to be able to evolve them and, and improve them and makes the people who are using them much more resilient towards those kinds of changes. Are there programming languages that are on like a continuous delivery or a continuous release process? Or is there something about the nature of programming languages that makes this infeasible? So I'm not aware of any that update much more rapidly than than we're doing. I think that there are quite a number that at least have an ambition of doing releases on about a six-month cadence. The reality is, I mean, we do do it more frequently than that. We have, you know, releases that are done in between. So basically, we have, you know, security, stability, and performance updates that we do basically four times a year. And so you combine that with the six-month feature releases. And, you know, that means that we're actually doing at least six updates a year. Now, you know, those are slightly different in terms of their nature. Like the, the main difference is that those four intermediate releases are ones that are done without any changes to the language and APIs. But I think that it does end up at a point where you're doing it basically just about every other month. And then in terms of other languages, I have seen a number that are doing every six months. I haven't really seen any doing more frequently than that. And I think part of that is that people do want stability. They want the ability to know that they're writing code that's not going to immediately be you know, no good and have to require a lot of change. <laughs> yeah. um, which is one of the reasons why we care as much as we do about compatibility and making sure that the changes that we introduce in these feature releases you know, tend for the most part to be additive. 
right? So yeah. we add new capabilities to the language. We add new APIs. We're very, very careful about cases where we might want to remove something and tend to try to make sure that people are aware of that far in advance, right? So uh -huh. we'll do something like deprecation. I think we still have things in the JDK that have been deprecated since like 1997. <laughs> yeah. um, but we've actually tried to get better about, you know, deprecating things, then marking them as deprecated for removal, you know, which indicates when they're going to go away, and then actually making good on that. Because at some level, you do have to make sure that you're pruning the garden a little bit so that you can have, you know, new healthy growth, right? And so we try to be careful of that. There are also other interesting aspects that you get. So as an example, when you're evolving the language itself, if you're doing something like adding a new keyword, for example, you have to be careful of collisions, right? If you all of a sudden add a new keyword, there may be existing code out there that actually uses that keyword as something else, like a method name or, or something. So one of the things that we tend to do there is try to look at some of the great resources that are out there in terms of code and do analysis of, you know, if we did this change, what would happen? So, you know, we'll sort of test it against all the code on Maven Central or, you know, some, something like that, right? You know, just to give you an idea in order to make sure that we're doing as, as little harm as possible in the efforts of trying to improve things for, for people. It can be kind of fun to go back through things that have been deprecated, like things that were deprecated long ago, and just get a little bit of an assessment of what didn't work. And I remember doing this a little bit in college, just reading comments about hot new ideas in the programming language world, like particularly the Java world. And it's just like, oh, well, and then it didn't work out. <laughs> and it's it's just like products, like Google sunsets products all the time. And it turns out that programming languages do the same thing. Yeah, that's true. And I think some of that also comes with style, right? Like if you sort of looked, uh, you know, 15 years ago, like you want to go long on XML. and <laughs> Right. Uh, Maybe today, not so much, although maybe is, there's still tons of use. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this podcast is going to be distributed over RSS, which is XML. There you go. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, th I think, uh, you know, it, th this is true. There are definitely trends that occur in programming language circles. And, you know, what we try to do is not lurch too much back and forth to the new hot thing, but really sort of try to understand where there are things that are going to be long-term persistent that actually bring value to people. And then take a step back and go, okay, well, what can we do to support that need? And sometimes it's something like putting in directly a particular library of support. Sometimes it's actually finding something underlying in the JVM implementation that can support other people making those kinds of libraries. And so we try to be pretty conscious of that. I think, you know, Java, when it originally came along, was attractive for many people because it did have a large and extensive standards library. On the other hand, we've always tried to make sure that we weren't trying to make the library so broad that it gave people in the ecosystem no room for innovation and, and producing things themselves, which is a hard balance to achieve, right? All right, well, let's get into some of the newer features of Java 13, because I think we've given a pretty broad perspective for Java and how the development process works. Java 13 has a feature called Dynamic Application Class Data Sharing, and I think this is a good example of how performance can be improved of the Java runtime over time. So in order to explain what dynamic application class data sharing is, we first need to explain what 
application class data sharing is. Can you explain what application class data sharing is? Yeah, so so basically the idea is that the way that Java traditionally works is, you know, the Java runtime starts up, it goes and it loads your application and all of its dependencies. And sometimes it does that sort of just on time. It doesn't necessarily go out and exhaustively do it right away. But basically it will tend to do a fairly quick pass that's doing class loading, starting to run, doing a little bit of compilation, and then over time monitoring the code paths that are, are hot and basically doing better and better code generation in order to make those run really, really quickly. And so, you know, that is one of the things that has meant that you have something that starts up in a reasonable amount of time, but then over time, the performance improves as you're actually running. Okay, so basically the the next step then is to say, okay, well, that's great, but I'm always running this application in the same environment. Maybe there's something that I can do that changes the balance a little bit so that I don't need to do all of that work on startup every single time, but instead I can start up a little bit more quickly and actually get to the warmed up state more quickly. And so the first step that we had there was class data sharing of the things that are in the JDK itself. And then sort of the next level is doing that, including your application as well, right? And so basically what this ends up doing is taking a bunch of the work once your code paths have gotten hot and a bunch of optimization has been done and figuring out how to take a lot of that data, that metadata, and basically creating a shared library that can just be reloaded and memory mapped in you know, when you're starting up rather than having to generate it each time. Can you give an example of what kinds of metadata sharing between classes can occur? You know, there's just all, all kinds of stuff that can be in there. Basically, if you sort of think that, you know, a, a class in and of itself doesn't really know that much about what's going on, it's in the context where it's being called that you can do things like, you know, inlining and other things, creating the... So basically, your Java code goes through a stage, you know, when you compile it where uh, platform-independent object code is created, right, the class file. But then even from the class file, when you're in a runtime, it's at that point that it knows I'm on this operating system, I'm on this hardware, I'm on this particular generation of this hardware that it can create the native code and produce the, the internal representation that's used to quickly be able to, uh, to map to native code. So those are the kinds of things that you don't want to have to, to generate each time. Hmm. And so... The development of dynamic application class data sharing archives, of all the things that you could have invested time into, why was that? And how did you know that that was a valuable enough endeavor to engineer? Because this sounds like something that was not easy to engineer. So I'm just, I'm, I'm looking to get a window into the development process, how you prioritize dynamic CDS archives. So, so this is exactly one of these features that works and is actually more important when you're running in the cloud, right? So where you're running, as an example, something that you expect to come up quickly and be at a warmed up speed quickly because it may not be around that long. It's sort of extra important. And then the sort of additional notion of creating something as a shared library that even could be used across instances in the cloud means that you're able to reduce footprint 
so that you're sort of consuming, you know, as few resources as possible, and ultimately, hopefully using that uh, save money. Are you able to share data between containers? Yeah, you can actually set it up so that that works. And that sounds hard. I mean, that sounds hard to engineer. Like, how did you, uh, can you tell me a little bit about the development process of getting that working? Well, you know, it's kind of what you would expect, right? That we sort of, you know, look at and analyze what underlying capabilities are there, and then we make sure that we're using them. So in this case, it's really sort of understanding the underlying capabilities, make sure, making sure that you know, Java is not doing something weird or making different assumptions. And then the other sort of key piece is trying to figure out how to take that and make it as easy to use as possible and not sort of require you to jump through a lot of hoops. And, and that's where we get to sort of the dynamically uh, generated part, right? The ability to leverage commonalities between containers this to me is is an interesting subject because especially when you when you talk start to talk about like serverless functionality because with serverless I don't know if you've looked into this very much but like there's this cold start problem where if I want to have if I want to deploy an AWS Lambda or you know Google Cloud function or whatever your serverless platform but they all have this issue where if I want to execute my application on demand I need to load all the context including any programming languages that this thing is going to need to execute. And then if you have infrastructure that is basically warmed up in the sense that you have like a JVM running or a JavaScript V8 running and it's already loaded on the node, then you save a lot of the startup time. So all you have to do is throw your custom application onto the node that's already been pre-warmed with the right virtual machine or infrastructure or whatever and it's going to execute a lot faster. And so that can improve the functionality of the functions as a service things. On the other hand, then you start to lose some of the isolation benefits, right? So any reflections on that trade-off? So I think it's hard to know when you're making you know, a programming language exactly which style people are going to want to use. And so what we try to do is sort of reduce the friction for being able to make that choice. Because, you know, which one is the right one to choose, you know, may be different depending on on what you're doing. So, you know, ideally, you're not having to make that choice purely because of limitations in the tool chain that you're using, right? And so, you know, as, as you say, doing something like having a hot start based on recycling a JVM that's been there, maybe even having, you know, applications that have been loaded. So you're basically making additional requests to something that's already up and running is one kind of architectural style. And, you know, that would be one that, you know, would favor certain aspects, but, you know, maybe give you challenges on others like isolation. And so the change that, you know, the new capability that we're bringing here makes it so that you aren't sort of restricted to choosing one style of architecture purely because the tools you're using aren't good at the other one. And so, you know, in this case, what we're trying to do is make it so that if you want to do something completely isolated in its own container with its own JVM, you know, and be an instance that's just kind of coming up quickly and, and doing something and going away, that style of architecture is one where you can absolutely choose Java. Let's talk about another element of Java 13, which is garbage collection. Garbage collection is, of course, an element of every Java uh, iteration. But as I was preparing for the show, I was getting a little bit caught up on the Java ecosystem, and I learned that there is a newer Java garbage collector called ZGC. Can you shed some light on, on ZGC? 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. So ZGC is basically a, a garbage collector that is made for being able to make very, very low latency pause time targets and, and guarantees. So traditionally, one of the challenges that people have when they choose a language like Java that does automated memory management is that, you know, you're rescinding some amount of control of, you know, when and how things are allocated, but more importantly, when all of the potential garbage that you've created is freed up. And so there are sort of different kinds of concerns that you can have depending on the particular workload and the situation you're in. Sometimes what people care a lot about is throughput. Sometimes what they care a lot about is latency, right? You want to know that uh, requests that are coming in are going to be serviced within a certain amount of time, a certain threshold. And more importantly, that you know, you're almost never going to have a transaction that is just sitting there hanging for a long period of time you know, from the perspective of what, whatever uh, client has made that request. And so the idea with ZGC is that you can set a pause time target and the system you know, will respect that. So basically, it will sort of try to do its best at you know, keeping with that very low latency target and you know, if it finds that for some reason it, it's starting to take longer than that, it will kind of back off and give you the opportunity to, to continue running. The key here is that, and by the way, this is you know, something that a number of folks have done in the past, you know, even, even some of our own products like JRocket, JVM did that a decade ago. The difference is that you know, in this day and age, the heap sizes are growing tremendously. And so what ZGC has as its design center is providing those kind of guarantees while scaling to terabyte heaps. And the heap, if I remember correctly, heap is memory that's allocated for objects, right? As opposed to memory that's allocated for what stack frames or something? Yeah, so so it basically, you know, any of the things that your application um, is creating is probably doing a bunch of allocations of memory in, in the heap. And the Java memory system generally manages that for you, right? So it basically worries about, you know, where are all of the objects? Where's all the data? And if garbage collection is done, it typically will not only collect uh, you know, objects that can no longer be reached, it also may move them around. So, you know, from uh, one indication of the garbage collection to the next, you know, the objects that your application has created may have ended up in, in completely different places, hopefully being compacted so that underlying facilities for handling things like paging and, and so on work smoothly, as well as if, if you're lucky, being able to take advantage of, of things like prefetching if you're working on a collection of data and making sure that the data that your CPU needs to operate on is actually at the CPU that it needs to be at the time you're trying to do an operation on it. One more question about garbage collection. How do you roll out a new garbage collector? Because that sounds like so hard. I mean, if you change the garbage collector, you may like totally change application performance for like millions of users, right? Absolutely. And so it tends to be something that we're very, very careful about. So interestingly, people who use Java come in, you know, in all flavors, right? There are people who really, really care about the performance of their garbage collector and will spend, you know, months tuning. And there are those who are like, look, I just want it to work. Let it do what it does behind the scenes. And again, it also can depend on the type of application that you are writing. Like if you're writing a trading system, it may be different from if you're writing an IDE. So those are also aspects that that tend to be important. 
when creating a new, a totally new garbage collector, it takes quite a while to get to the point where you have something that's working at all. But then what you tend to want to do is try it on what you hope are a bunch of representative applications and sort of make measurements about how it's working. And then over time, increase the you know, circle of applications that you're trying it with. Typically, you want to try it with the kind of application that you hope is going to display better behavior with your garbage collection algorithm. But you may want to do the reverse as well, right? Try to figure out the things that you think it's not going to be as good at and try it on those and maybe try to minimize how bad it is on the things that it's sort of okay that it be bad on. I think another you know, big concern that tends to come in is how tunable do you make it you know, versus how good is it out of the box? And so we tend to do all of those things, you know, test all of those things. We will also test how it works over time. So doing something that will do runs that go on, throwing all kinds of stuff at it, you know, for weeks and, and months to try to make sure that the performance keeps up and doesn't degrade over time and you don't have leaks and, and all that kind of great stuff. And then ultimately, the real test is we'll download lots of applications from across the internet. We'll run it on a bunch of internal applications that we have. You know, Oracle does has you know, tons of things running in Java, so there are lots of great applications we can try. But then putting it as first, you know, generally as, as a project outside of the mainline of Java and delivering bills directly that people can try and give us feedback on, ultimately getting it into the JDK, but as an experimental garbage collector, each of these steps give us sort of incrementally more people trying it and, and using it and giving us feedback and ultimately getting to the state where it becomes a supported garbage collector. And then over time, it may actually be on a path to becoming a new default collector, or it might not be, right? It might be a collector that remains in there as a supported collector for years and years, but because it's more special purpose than general purpose, it sort of, you know, might remain in that state for quite a while. And then sort of to round out the life cycle, we're actually at kind of a state where, you know, we may look at some of these things and say, does this garbage collector still make sense? Is it something we should continue to maintain? Or is it perhaps something whose original purpose and need have been obviated by later developments? And we're actually coming up on a stage where that may occur for at least one of the garbage collectors that's, that's been in Java for quite a while. So that'll, that'll be interesting to see because, of course, the more things you're carrying around in the backpack, the slower you tend to go. So we actively look at places where you know, new things and new developments can kind of replace older things and continue to make progress for everyone using Java. George, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it and uh, look forward to talking with you again.